Uh, we are in the book of Revelation, and it's a funny thing that we are studying the last book of the Bible because I was so resistant to the idea for such a long time. The Lord kept putting it on my heart that one day he'd have me preach through the book of Revelation, and I came up with every excuse not to. It's hard. It's complicated. It's confusing. There are things in it that are, are debated and are strange and are complicated and are uh, divisive even, Lord God. I, I don't want to do it. And why should I do it, Lord, when things are going so well? I mean, the kinds of things that, that were in this book, they, they don't apply to, to most of us here in the good US, U.S. of A. Our life is pretty easy. We, we don't have to face the kind of struggles, the persecution, the kind of temptation that the early church found. Boy, how wrong was I? Lord said, yes, you are going to do this. So we started it uh, last fall in September. We went through and we took a break at Christmas time and we picked it up again. And what we've seen in the life of our church, and if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been studying this book of, of Revelation, the last book of the Bible since September. We've seen just an increase of people's interests and engagement in studying God's word, of seeing what does the Lord have to say for us and seeing that impact, not just uh, learning or interest in preaching, but, but actual uh, activity has grown. Outreach has grown. Putting faith into action is at, is at a height that I haven't seen since I've been here. So praise God for that. And it's all because I think the Lord is, is uh, as I've been trying to follow his lead and the elders say, yes, preach through the last book of the Bible, the Lord's saying, Okay, Pete, you're doing what I told you to do. You're in the middle of my will. I'm going to bless this. And so it is a blessing. So here we are uh, in the book of Revelation. And I'll say this. There is no other book in the Bible like the book of Revelation to answer the big questions that we're all asking. Uh, questions like, how did we get here? What's going to happen next? Do my prayers count? What am I going to do with all this extra toilet paper? <laughs> okay, full disclosure, uh, the book of Revelation does not address your TP hoarding issue, but it will ask and answer the question, what do I treasure? Those are the big questions that we're, we're looking at this morning. Revelation shows us that there's more going on in the world than meets the unaided eye. That's why I've got my, my glasses on today, because I ran out of contacts. And in a way, uh, studying the book of Revelation is like putting on a set of spiritual spectacles to see what's really going on. And what's really going on in this chaotic, upside-down world is that Jesus Christ has already won the victory over sin and the devil through his life, death, and resurrection. And we're only a few moves uh, till the final checkmate of Satan, until Jesus returns. And that if we see this, what we've found is if we, if we look to this greater vision of what's really going on in life, we can experience victory. Kind of our tagline for our series is, we can be more than conquerors through Christ. And he will give us a bigger vision for faith, and for life, this side of heaven. That's an audacious goal, but that's what we're seeing the Lord do. So, so let me set up the scene for us here. 
uh, in the book of Revelation, okay? It, it's the end of the first century. We're talking late, uh, late 90s AD. The Romans have invaded Jerusalem and they've destroyed uh, the second temple just as Jesus predicted 25 years before. The churches are starting to pop up in the Roman Empire. Families are getting saved. They're getting baptized. And this particular or peculiar offshoot, off-brand Jewish sect is starting to attract a lot of attention. And and the powers that be will say, fine, you know, the riffraff are are joining this strange uh, little backwater uh, group of followers of some Messiah. There have been many that have come and gone. But they start to take notice when actual Roman citizens start to listen and follow the way. They start to be baptized, and they start to say, Jesus is my Lord. And that's when the powers that be start to take notice, and we notice that in that early history of the church, persecution starts to pick up. The emperors of Rome were were all ruthless, but none was worse than Domitian. I mean, this guy, his reign of terror on both Jews and Christians was infamous, He had a huge ego, and he engaged in idolatry. Idolatry is a worship of false gods. And knew no bounds. I mean, every every, uh, pagan leader of that time had some idol that they would worship, but he turned himself into the very idol of worship. He ordered all citizens and subjects of the empire to worship him as Lord and God. He called Rome the eternal empire and in himself the everlasting king. And all were required to go to a special temple built in his honor to offer a sacrifice. Just a pinch of incense thrown on an altar fire and would say two simple words, Caesar Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. So you see how This leader of an empire, political, powerful, military leader, mixes in religion and faith and things that people hold dear, and he brings the two together. Now, now, let me say, he didn't care if, if people believed other things so long as they performed this little act of worship to hold together his fragile empire, and and historians actually say his fragile ego too. For most people, no big deal. Fine, just do it, get it over with. No big deal. Not for John. John refused to pledge allegiance to anyone but Jesus. For John, Jesus was the one true and only Lord. Now, yeah, remember, John, at this point, he's in his 80s. And maybe physically he'd be fragile. Maybe we would put him in that category, like our Octarians and above, in that fragile category physically. But spiritually, you want to mess with someone who's been walking with Jesus for 60-plus years of their life? He's like, he's not going to have any of that. He doesn't care what happens to him physically. There's no way... This side of heaven, he's going to pledge allegiance to anyone 
but Jesus. And so for that act of defiance, that act of sedition, and sedition means working against the state, inciting people to work against the powers uh, that be, to rebel against them, for that, he's arrested. Now remember who, what we're talking about here. We're talking about an old man who just won't take a pinch of incense and say a few words. It's not like he's lobbing Molotov cocktails or, or throwing some big raging party that's, that's going to burn down the empire. He just doesn't want to participate in this act of idolatry. In scripture, we'll see that uh, the idea of sexual immorality is equated with idolatry, of, of giving one's heart or life to another. He doesn't want to do that. He's not willing to do what 99.5% of everyone else in town is willing to do, to engage in civil religion, just to simply say what Caesar wants to bend the knee. He says, no, not this time. And for that act, John was arrested. And because he was a well-known Christian leader, and Rome didn't want to have any more martyrs, they took John and they put him on an island called Patmos, 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea, in the middle of nowhere, to pound sand in a rock quarry until he died a quiet death. And there John is when he receives the revelation. So picture John praying on a Sunday morning. He's looking out over the sea, 10 miles to the coastline, and beyond that coastline are the seven churches that he cares for so deeply, made up of young Christians who are facing terrible persecution and influence to get them to give up their faith. There's things happening in those churches that, that he can't do anything about. False teaching creeping into the church, mixing true religion with this civic empire worship junk. And those that are remaining faithful, they are getting hammered. And just imagine being faithful to Jesus and for being faithful to Jesus, losing everything you own, your business shutting down. Imagine for saying, we are a Christian family. For that, in the middle of the night, one of your loved ones is snatched by the authority never to be seen again. I imagine John, fists clenched, tears running down his wrinkled face, just the anger that he'd feel. And he catches his breath and releases it in faithful prayer, just calling out to the Lord for help. And it's in that moment, it's in that time, praying to God to do something against this evil empire that he receives the revelation. The chapters we're about to look at today, this morning, chapters 17 and 18, John sees something incredible, and we get to see it as well. The fall of Babylon. That's the title of today's message, The Fall of Babylon. What I'm about to read to you is a, is a vision. It's more than a dream. It's not a fairy tale, but it's a vision it's a hyper-realized understanding of reality, of things past, present, and to come. An apocalyptic writing unveiling of these mysteries uh, of the universe 
is filled with symbolism from the Old Testament. It's just packed with symbolism and understanding it is meant to evoke a response within us. Babylon is personified as a woman. And we saw a woman once before in chapter 12, a woman who gave birth to a son, and, and that, that woman who gave birth to the son gave birth to a savior. Here we see another woman. But this Babylon is personified as a prostitute. And there's worse words in other translations of scripture of what her name or her title would be. A seducer, a deceiver, someone who uses people. This, this vision matters for you and for me today because it will answer the big questions that we started with. How did we get here? What's happening? Where are we going next? Do our prayers even matter? And what do we treasure? So let's read Revelation chapter 17. I won't read all of 18. It's a long passage, so I hope that you can just bear with me. We'll read from chapter 17, verse 1 to 18, verse 8. Listen now to God's word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman seated sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abomination." And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And remember, this is deeply, deeply symbolic imagery we see. Think of like a political cartoon when you're reading a magazine or newspaper. You see a a cartoon that represents all these things. John's seeing all this. Verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom had fallen. One is and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Verse 11. And as the beast, and as for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they, they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14, underline this one. 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw were where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, just a little bit of chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for, un- for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for, for every unclean and detestable beast, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her cup. She mixed as she glorified herself and lived in in luxury. So give her a measure of torment and mourning. Since her, her heart says, I sit as a queen. I am a widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason... Her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judged her. This is the word of the living God. Woo! That's some fire and brimstone scripture. But let's get into it. Let's understand what's happening. Let's not avoid it. Why do you want to go to a church that wouldn't read God's, it's God's word. Why would we avoid it? Let's not hide it. Let's understand it. Let's see the vision that God has for us, okay? In the Old Testament, Babylon was a city. In the New Testament, Babylon is an evil spirit. It's an evil spirit of the age. Babylon was first introduced in the Bible where, class? That's right. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the the place where people describe themselves by by, by this desire to make a name for themselves. And so they wanted to get organized. They wanted to build something great for themselves, and they wanted to defy their creator. That's in Genesis chapter 11. Babel later becomes Babylon. Later, she becomes an empire that destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple, and takes God's people away into exile. And so this evil empire in the Old Testament is personified as a she, 
effeminate. We think about her great empire. She imposes her worldview. She assimilates and she conquers. So in the Old Testament, Babylon is the archetype of the evil empire. Wicked, self-indulgent, and brutal, especially toward God's people. And the Lord God announced her destruction in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 11. Let me read that to you. Disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with ransom. You can't pay off what's coming, people. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. And that's exactly what happened. God's words were fulfilled. The evil empire of Babylon, the Babylonians, were utterly destroyed in 539 BC. Fast forward 650 years. Babylon, it's nothing. It's just this measly little village in the middle of nowhere. But, but its references start showing up in the New Testament. So this evil empire from long ago, it's completely utterly destroyed. It's just a little village. But now the New Testament writers start referencing it as a symbol of all that is at war with God's people. You're tracking with me? Okay. The Apostle Peter makes mention of it in the end of his first letter. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter 5, 13 to 14. Are you listening to me? Do you need to go get some coffee? Go ahead. We'll wait for you. No, we won't. We'll keep going. <laughs> 1 Peter 5, 13 to 14. Ray. He ends his letter. He's just writing the end of his letter. Just a little uh, final send off. He writes this quote. She who is in Babylon sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. He, he addresses she who is in Babylon. Peter is nowhere near Babylon. Peter is in Rome. The apostle Peter is in Rome with people around himself, but he's referring to Rome, the headquarters of the evil empire at that time, as Babylon. And for that sedition, history tells us that the apostle Peter was crucified upside down. Just imagine when we tell people uh, that the good news of the gospel is God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Would that include being crucified upside down for faith? There's got to be more. There's got to be something greater than a wonderful life that God holds out for us. He holds out for us eternal life. But that's for another sermon. So she is Babylon. Rome is the new Babylon in the New Testament. It's the city, it's the spirit of the age that is evil. Now we get to our text in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. John is carried away in the spirit to the wilderness where he sees this disgusting creature riding this nasty old beast and, and he sees her fall. She, he sees her utterly destroyed. She see, he sees her very own that were supporters of her turn against her. The symbolic references here are replete with references to the Old Testament, to the, the, the book of Ezekiel, to Isaiah, Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. And as I mentioned before, it's like a political cartoon. So we really have to kind of dig deep. And we don't have the format here to, to dig too, too deep. But I'll say this. John is seeing a vision of the structures of anti-Christian civilization 
and how they have fallen in the past and how they will ultimately fall. So we're not going to uh, dive too deep into it, but let me just point out a few references to the symbolism, okay? Just a few things. First, it says that she's seated on many waters. And, and the, the angel uh, tells John later that those waters represent people and nations of, of different places. The, the tumultuous uh, turmoil of, of a water, the chaos, she's sitting on them. She's just in control of these peoples. It's also a reference to Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 15, uh, 13. Jeremiah 51, verse 13, and guess what that's about? The fall of Babylon, okay. Seven hills, a reference to, uh, to seven hills, that would be a reference to Rome. Rome was known as the city of the seven hills. And so also the color, what is she wearing? She's wearing red and scarlet, that would be the colors of Rome. The jewelry that she wears, those are all references to the merchant uh, trade of gold and and, and precious uh, metals and precious things and jewels. She's wearing all of that. She's, she's wearing all of her wealth. She's wearing all that bling to represent that she is part of and she is the very heart of the Roman Empire. This idea of, of wearing a name, a blasphemous name, what does that mean? It means not just literally a tattoo. It's, it's her very character. It's her brand. What's your brand? Her brand is... I don't need God. Her brand is, I'm the center of the universe. Her brand is, I'll do anything to destroy anyone who stands between me and my power, using government institutions, political powers, social economic levers to put people under my thumb. She drinks the blood of martyrs. Friends, this is a time when Christians were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. That reference to sexual immorality, it's not about uh, sex. It's, it's about people finding such great pleasure in buying into this whole system of lies and injustice and using people for gain. Are you getting the picture? Whether it's called Babylon or Rome, or fill in the blank, any social, economic, political system backed by power that attacks God's people is what John sees, and he sees it fall. And what's really scary to me is John, of all people, it says, marvels at what he sees, that that he's amazed by. Here's a man who's so faithful He's willing to give up everything, not to just throw some incense on a fire. He ends up on a rock pile. But even John, when he sees it, he's like, ooh, that's unreal. <laughs> that's beautiful. And what does the angel have to do? Snap out of it, John. See how destructive it is. But even John can be wooed and enticed by what he sees in this world order. The angel says, John, it's falling, it's falling, it's falling before God and all the kings and merchants and, and, and craftsmen and captains of industry cry because they lose everything when she goes down. The harlot of Babylon is the spirit of the culture that seduces and tries to, to deceive and destroy the church, tries to destroy 
the Christian faith, Revelation shows that that world system will inevitably turn on itself. It'll be like a snake eating its own tail. It will inevitably, in the end, destroy itself. We don't need to, to raise up arms. We sing, we raise a hallelujah, right? Right, Rob? That's, our, that's, that's how we fight the battle. We don't have to raise up arms. We don't have to, like, rage against the machine. We trust the living God to win our victory. The beast here is described as one who, quote, was and is not and is about to rise uh, from the bottomless pit. This is a gross parody of the triune God. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, God who, who is and who was and is to come. And it says in Scripture here that it will keep coming back in one form or another until the final judgment. But John sees, and he wants us to see, a bigger vision. He wants us to see beyond where we're living, the Babylon that we find ourselves in, to the kingdom of God. And not to give in to temptation, but to hold on to our faith so that we might have victory. I want you to underline, if you haven't already, chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. My friends, this is good news. Jesus, John says here, John records, Jesus saves his own and he enables us to be faithful to him. To see by faith what the world is selling. To really see by faith what the world is peddling. And to recognize what the world is trying to sell you cannot sell you true and lasting love, hope, joy. They can pour every penny into advertisement and consumerism, but it can never deliver the way being faithful to Jesus can. So we conquer. We have victory Listen, listen, not by fleeing the city, not, not by, by hiding out or becoming antisocial, not by lobbing Molotov cocktails or, or trying. Uh, we are in the book of Revelation. And it's a funny thing that we are studying the last book of the Bible because I was so resistant to the idea for such a long time. The Lord kept putting it on my heart that one day, He'd have me preach through the book of Revelation, and I came up with every excuse not to. It's hard. It's complicated. It's confusing. There are things in it that are are debated and are strange and are complicated and are uh, divisive even, Lord God. I I don't want to do it. And why should I do it, Lord, when things are going so well? I mean, the kinds of things that that were in this book, they, they don't apply to to most of us here in the good U.S. of A. Our life is pretty easy. We, we don't have to face the kind of struggles, the persecution, the kind of temptation that the early church found. Boy, how wrong was I? The Lord said, yes, you are going to do this. And so we started it uh, last fall in September. We went through and we took a break at Christmas time and we picked it up again. And what we've seen in the life of our church, and if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been studying this book of uh, of Revelation, the last book of the Bible since September, we've seen just an increase of people's 
interest and engagement in studying God's word, of seeing what does the Lord have to say for us, and seeing that impact, not just uh, learning or interest in preaching, but, but actual uh, activity has grown. Outreach has grown. Putting faith into action is at, is at a height that I haven't seen since I've been here. So praise God for that. And it's all because I think the Lord is, is uh, as I've been trying to follow his lead and the elders say, yes, preach through the last book of the Bible, the Lord's saying, okay, Pete, you're doing what I told you to do. You're in the middle of my will. I'm going to bless this. And so it is a blessing. So here we are uh, in the book of Revelation. And I'll say this, there is no other book in the Bible like the book of Revelation to answer the big questions that we're all asking. Uh, Questions like, how did we get here? What's going to happen next? Do my prayers count? What am I going to do with all this extra toilet paper? (laughs) Okay, full disclosure, uh, the book of Revelation does not address your TP hoarding issue, but it will ask and answer the question, what do I treasure? Those are the big questions that we're, we're looking at this morning. Revelation shows us that there's more going on in the world than meets the unaided eye. That's why I've got my, my glasses on today because I ran out of contacts. And in a way, uh, studying the book of Revelation is like putting on a set of spiritual spectacles to see what's really going on. And what's really going on in this chaotic upside down world is that Jesus Christ has already won the victory over sin and the devil through his life, death, and resurrection. And we're only a few moves uh, till the final checkmate of Satan, until Jesus returns. And that if we see this, what we've found is if we, if we look to this greater vision of what's really going on in life, we can experience victory. Kind of our tagline for our series is, we can be more than conquerors through Christ. And he will give us a bigger vision for faith and for life this side of heaven. That's an audacious goal, but that's what we're seeing the Lord do. So, so let me set up the scene for us here. Uh, in the book of Revelation, okay? It, it's the end of the first century. We're talking late, uh, late 90s AD. The Romans have invaded Jerusalem and they've destroyed uh, the second temple just as Jesus predicted 25 years before. The churches are starting to pop up in the Roman Empire. Families are getting saved. They're getting baptized. And this particular or peculiar offshoot, off-brand Jewish sect is starting to attract a lot of attention. And and the powers that be will say, fine, you know, the riffraff are are joining this strange uh, little backwater uh, group of followers of some Messiah. There have been many that have come and gone. But they start to take notice when actual Roman citizens start to listen and follow the way. They start to be baptized, and they start to say, Jesus is my Lord. And that's when the powers that be start to take notice. And we notice that in that early history of the church, persecution starts to pick up. The emperors of Rome were were all ruthless, but none was worse than Domitian. I mean, this guy, 
His reign of terror on both Jews and Christians was infamous. He had a huge ego, and he engaged in idolatry. Idolatry is a worship of false gods. And knew no bounds. I mean, every, every uh, pagan leader of that time had some idol that they would worship, but he turned himself into the very idol of worship. He ordered all citizens and subjects of the empire to worship him as Lord and God. He called Rome the eternal empire and in himself the everlasting king. And all were required to go to a special temple built in his honor to offer a sacrifice. Just a pinch of incense thrown on an altar fire and would say two simple words, Caesar Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. So you see how this leader of an empire, political, powerful, military leader, mixes in religion and faith and things that people hold dear, and he brings the two together. Now, now let me say, he didn't care if, if people believed other things so long as they performed this little act of worship to hold together his fragile empire, and, and historians actually say his fragile ego, too. For most people, no big deal. Fine, just do it, get it over with. No big deal. Not for John. John refused to pledge allegiance to anyone but Jesus. For John, Jesus was the one true and only Lord. Now, yeah, remember, John, at this point, he's in his 80s. And maybe physically he'd be fragile. Maybe we would put him in that category, like our octarians and above, in that fragile category physically, but spiritually. You want to mess with someone who's been walking with Jesus for 60 plus years of their life? He's like, he's not going to have any of that. He doesn't care what happens to him physically. There's no way this side of heaven, he's going to pledge allegiance to anyone but Jesus. And so for that act of defiance, that act of sedition, and sedition means working against the state, inciting people to work against the powers uh, that be, to rebel against them, for that, he's arrested. Now remember who, what we're talking about here. We're talking about an old man who just won't take a pinch of incense and say a few words. It's not like he's lobbing Molotov cocktails or or throwing some big raging party that's, that's going to burn down the empire. He just doesn't want to participate in this act of idolatry. In scripture, we'll see that uh, the idea of sexual immorality is equated with idolatry, of, of giving one's heart or life to another. He doesn't want to do that. He's not willing to do what 99.5% of everyone else in town is willing to do to engage in civil religion, just to simply say what Caesar wants to bend the knee, he says, no, not this time. And for that act, John was arrested. And because he was a well-known Christian leader and Rome didn't want to have any more martyrs, 
they took John and they put him on an island called Patmos, 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea, in the middle of nowhere, to pound sand in a rock quarry until he died a quiet death. And there John is when he receives the revelation. So picture John praying on a Sunday morning. He's looking out over the sea, 10 miles to the coastline, and beyond that coastline are the seven churches that he cares for so deeply, made up of young Christians who are facing terrible persecution and influence to get them to give up their faith. There's things happening in those churches that, that he can't do anything about. False teaching creeping into the church, mixing true religion with this civic empire worship junk. And those that are remaining faithful, they are getting hammered. And just imagine being faithful to Jesus and for being faithful to Jesus, losing everything you own, your business shutting down. Imagine for saying, we are a Christian family. For that, in the middle of the night, one of your loved ones is snatched by the authority, never to be seen again. I imagine John, fists clenched, tears running down his wrinkled face, just the anger that he'd feel. And he catches his breath and releases it in faithful prayer, just calling out to the Lord for help. And it's in that moment, it's in that time, praying to God to do something against this evil empire that he receives the revelation. The chapters we're about to look at today, this morning, chapters 17 and 18, John sees something incredible, and we get to see it as well. The fall of Babylon. That's the title of today's message, The Fall of Babylon. What I'm about to read to you is a, is a vision. It's more than a dream. It's not a fairy tale, but it's a vision. It's a hyper-realized understanding of reality, of things past, present, and to come. An apocalyptic writing unveiling of these mysteries uh, of the universe is filled with symbolism from the Old Testament. It's just packed with symbolism and understanding it is meant to evoke a response within us. Babylon is personified as a woman. And we saw a woman once before in chapter 12, a woman who gave birth to a son, and, and that, that woman who gave birth to the son gave birth to a savior. Here we see another woman. But this Babylon is personified as a prostitute. And there's worse words in other translations of scripture of what her name or her title would be. A seducer, a deceiver, someone who uses people. This, this vision matters for you and for me today because it will answer the big questions that we started with. How did we get here? What's happening? Where are we going next? Do our prayers even matter? And what do we treasure? So let's read Revelation chapter 17. I won't read all of 18. It's a long passage, so I hope that you can just bear with me. We'll read from chapter 17, verse 1, 
to 18, verse 8. Listen now to God's word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman seated sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abomination." And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And remember, this is deeply, deeply symbolic imagery we see. Think of like a political cartoon when you're reading a magazine or newspaper. You see a a cartoon that represents all these things. John's seeing all this. Verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom had fallen. One is and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Verse 11. And as the beast, and as for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they, they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14, underline this one. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, just a little bit of chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for, un- for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for, for every unclean and detestable beast, for all nations 
have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her cup. She mixed as she glorified herself and lived in in luxury. So give her a measure of torment and mourning. Since her, her heart says, I sit as a queen. I am a widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason... Her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judged her. This is the word of the living God. Woo! That's some fire and brimstone scripture. But let's get into it. Let's understand what's happening. Let's not avoid it. Why do you want to go to a church that wouldn't read God's, it's God's word. Why would we avoid it? Let's not hide it. Let's understand it. Let's see the vision that God has for us, okay? In the Old Testament, Babylon was a city. In the New Testament, Babylon is an evil spirit. It's an evil spirit of the age. Babylon was first introduced in the Bible where, class? That's right. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the, the place where people describe themselves by, by, by this desire to make a name for themselves. And so they wanted to get organized. They wanted to build something great for themselves, and they wanted to defy their creator. That's in Genesis chapter 11. Babel later becomes Babylon. Later, she becomes an empire that destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple, and takes God's people away into exile. And so this evil empire in the Old Testament is personified as a she, a feminine. We think about her great empire. She imposes her worldview. She assimilates and she conquers. So in the Old Testament, Babylon is the archetype of the evil empire. Wicked, self-indulgent, and brutal, especially toward God's people. And the Lord God announced her destruction in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 11. Let me read that to you. Disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with ransom. You can't pay off what's coming, people. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. And that's exactly what happened. God's words were fulfilled. The evil empire of Babylon, the Babylonians, were utterly destroyed in 539 BC. Fast forward 650 years. Babylon, it's it's nothing. It's just this measly little village in the middle of nowhere. But, But its references start showing up in the New Testament. So this evil empire from long ago, it's completely utterly destroyed. It's just a little village, but now 
the New Testament writers start referencing it as a symbol of all that is at war with God's people. You're tracking with me? Okay. The Apostle Peter makes mention of it in the end of his first letter. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter 5, 13 to 14. Are you listening to me? Do you need to go get some coffee? Go ahead. We'll wait for you. No, we won't. We'll keep going. <laughs> 1 Peter 5, 13 to 14. You ready? He ends his letter. He's just writing the end of his letter, just a little uh, final send-off. He writes this, quote, She who is in Babylon sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. He, he addresses she who is in Babylon. Peter is nowhere near Babylon. Peter is in Rome. The apostle Peter is in Rome with people around himself, but he's referring to Rome, the headquarters of the evil empire at that time, as Babylon. And for that sedition, history tells us that the apostle Peter was crucified upside down. Just imagine when we tell people uh, that the good news of the gospel is God loves you as a wonderful plan for your life. Would that include being crucified upside down for faith? There's got to be more. There's got to be something greater than a wonderful life that God holds out for us. He holds out for us eternal life. But that's for another sermon. <laughs> so she is Babylon. Rome is the new Babylon in the New Testament. It's the city, it's the spirit of the age that is evil. Now we get to our text in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. John is carried away in the spirit to the wilderness where he sees this disgusting creature riding this nasty old beast and, and he sees her fall. She, he sees her utterly destroyed. She see, he sees her very own that were supporters of her turn against her. The symbolic references here are replete with references to the Old Testament, to the, the, the book of Ezekiel, to Isaiah, Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. And as I mentioned before, it's like a political cartoon. So we really have to kind of dig deep. And we don't have the format here to, to dig too, too deep. But I'll say this. John is seeing a vision of the structures of anti-Christian civilization and how they have fallen in the past and how they will ultimately fall. So we're not going to get, uh, dive too deep into it, but let me just point out a few references to the symbolism, okay? Just a few things. First, it says that she's seated on many waters. And, and the, the angel uh, tells John later that those waters represent people and nations of, of different places. The, the tumultuous uh, turmoil of, of a water, the chaos, she's sitting on them. She's just in control of these peoples. It's also a reference to Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 15, uh, 13. Jeremiah 51, verse 13. And guess what that's about? The fall of Babylon. Okay. Seven hills, a reference to, uh, to seven hills, that would be a reference to Rome. Rome was known as the city of the seven hills. And so also the color, what is she wearing? She's wearing red and scarlet. That would be the colors of Rome. The jewelry that she wears, those are all references to the merchant uh, trade of gold and, and, and precious uh, metals and precious things and jewels. She's wearing all of that. She's, she's wearing all of her wealth. She's wearing all that bling to represent 
that she is part of, and she is the very heart of the Roman Empire. This idea of, of wearing a name, a blasphemous name, what does that mean? It means not just literally a tattoo. It's, it's her very character. It's her brand. What's your brand? Her brand is, I don't need God. Her brand is, I'm the center of the universe. Her brand is, I'll do anything to destroy anyone who stands between me and my power using government institutions, political powers, social economic levers to put people under my thumb. She drinks the blood of martyrs. Friends, this is a time when Christians were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. That reference to sexual immorality, it's not about uh, sex, it's, it's about people finding such great pleasure in buying into this whole system of lies and injustice and using people for gain. Are you getting the picture? Whether it's called Babylon or Rome or fill in the blank, any social, economic, political system backed by power that attacks God's people is what John sees and he sees it fall. And what's really scary to me is John, of all people, it says, marvels at what he sees. That, that he's amazed by it. Here's a man who's so faithful. He's willing to give up everything, not to just throw some incense on fire. He ends up on a rock pile. But even John, when he sees it, he's like, ooh, that's unreal. <laughs> that's beautiful. And what does the angel have to do? Snap out of it, John. See how destructive it is, but even John can be wooed and enticed by what he sees in this world order. The angel says, John, it's falling, it's falling, it's falling before God, and all the kings and merchants and, and, and craftsmen and captains of industry cry because they lose everything when she goes down. The harlot of Babylon is the spirit of the culture that seduces and tries to, to deceive and destroy the church, tries to destroy the Christian faith. Revelation shows that that world system will inevitably turn on itself. It'll be like a snake eating its own tail. It will inevitably, in the end, destroy itself. We don't need to, to raise up arms. We sing, we raise a hallelujah, Right? Right, Rob? That's, our, that's, that's how we fight the battle. We don't have to raise up arms. We don't have to like rage against the machine. We trust the living God to win our victory. The beast here is described as one who, quote, was and is not and is about to rise uh, from the bottomless pit. This is a gross parody of the triune God. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, God who who is and who was and is to come. And it says in scripture here that it will keep coming back in one form or another until the final judgment. But John sees, and he wants us to see a bigger vision. He wants us to see beyond where we're living, the Babylon that we find ourselves in, to the kingdom of God. And not to give in to temptation, but to hold on to our faith, 
so that we might have victory. I want you to underline, if you haven't already, chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. My friends, this is good news. Jesus, John says here, John records, Jesus saves his own, and he enables us to be faithful to him, to see by faith what the world is selling, to really see by faith what the world is peddling, and to recognize what the world is trying to sell you cannot sell you true and lasting love, hope, joy. They can pour every penny into advertisement and consumerism, but it can never deliver the way being faithful to Jesus can. So we conquer. We have victory. Listen, listen. Not by fleeing the city. Not, not by, by hiding out or becoming antisocial. Not by lobbing Molotov cocktails or, or trying to protest. How do we have victory? By having confidence in this text. How do we have victory? By engaging people in our God-given purpose, in engaging people in our God-given vocation, in our work, in living faithfulness for Jesus in the city to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Why is it that throughout all of Western history, we've had hospitals being built, universities being built, the greatest breakthroughs of science coming out of our Judeo-Christian background from Christians who are leaning in, who are using their vocation. I have my job and I thank you for it. I'm blessed to do it and so is Rob. We need you engaged in whatever work God calls you to, to bring the kingdom. That's the response. So where are we headed? Where are we headed? Let me ask you, are, are you headed toward Babylon or toward the New Jerusalem? The goals in your life, the things that you're setting as important, are you heading towards Babylon or towards the New Jerusalem? Will you, get, uh, will you give in to the seduction, the text is asking, of the culture's red light district? Or will you pledge allegiance to the civic religion and just give in to what the world offers to you? Or will you remain faithful to Jesus and pledge your allegiance only to him and to his kingdom? These are the questions that are, that are being asked. Ask them of yourself. Let me, let me put it another way because I need to ask these questions of myself all the time. Am I willing to compromise my faith to share in the world's wealth and advantages? Just toss a pinch of incense on the fire. Say a little pledge. Am I willing to compromise my faith to share in the world's riches and advantages, but at the cost of also inheriting a share of the coming judgment? Or will we follow the lamb wherever he goes? Revelation 14.4. And work for good. We take our faith and we put it into action as followers of Christ, to see his kingdom come. Friends, I love seeing our, our country come together this time 
to fight this invisible enemy. We have so much in common as Americans, so much more in common than what divides us. We're seeing that. Isn't that a beautiful thing to see how people are coming together? So many good works are happening in the midst of this crisis through, through the coordination, communication, ingenuity, the sacrifice of so many by, by our healthcare providers, by our first responders, by teachers, by our National Guard, by government, local, state, and federal government actually working together, by media. Yeah, even social media is helping out. Corporations marshalling their resources, retooling factories to make ventilators. I mean, what a beautiful thing. And it is. See how we're cooperating together to stay home and stay safe so that, that we might save lives. And then we have this incredible package, $2.2 trillion in aid that's been passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. So, so through that, it gives us many reasons to say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. And also to say, help us, Lord, help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, help our next, the next generation and the generation after that that will be paying those bills. Both Christians and atheists are concerned with making the world a better place. But only one of the two works at it with the assurance that there will be a day when every wrong is righted and every tear wiped away. It's because our faith is in the one who came to rescue the world, who lived, who showed us how to live, and then died on the cross and rose on the third day from the grave. He knows what's going to happen. He is leading the way. Will we listen to him and listen to his word? Do our prayers count? Huh. Do our prayers count? John was there thinking that very thing. Do my prayers matter? And here he sees the prayers of the martyrs being answered, that one day justice will be served. Do you question whether your prayers matter? And I have to ask you, do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you do, you know your prayers matter. You, you will know in your heart of hearts if you have a personal, growing relationship with Jesus Christ, the prayers that you lift up and you say amen to, you know that they matter. Don't you know that he's got this? Don't you know that he's got this? And then for Pete's sake, why did you buy all that toilet paper? I mean, why did you have all that toilet paper? So here's the call to action, for church. I want you, at the end of this program, we're going to end in just a little bit. Rob's got one more song for us, right, Rob? We've got one more song. I want you to have a family meeting. And if you're on your own, if, if you're alone right now, maybe you're driving somewhere watching this, call someone in your circle of, of life who's, who you call family. But I want you to huddle together. And, and right now, at the end of this program, I want you to have a family meeting and consider how will our family respond? I'm not talking about washing our hands. I'm not talking about social distancing. How will we respond to the crisis of today and in the weeks to come? And what sacrifices are we willing to make to see this be an opportunity where, where hearts are softened to the gospel like none other? 
where there will be tremendous needs of, of your neighbors who've lost their jobs, or people that you know, maybe even strangers out in your neighborhood who lose a loved one. So how will we as a family respond? What can we do? I want you to have that meeting. And, and, and I, we still appreciate the love and support that you're sending to us, saying, Rob, thank you so much for the music. Pastor P, thanks for what you're doing. I love to hear what you come up with as a family in your response. And finally, finally, what do you treasure? And where are you storing it? Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures uh, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up your treasures in heaven. No moths, no rust, no thieves. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you treasuring? What are you hoarding on to? Heaven, my friends, is not a place we're waiting to evacuate to, but a redeemed and restored world that we work to bring into the present as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So join your life with his life. Build your identity, your values, your wealth, your family, your foundation on what lasts. Come on up, Rob. Friends, let's see the evil empire fall. And let's see the kingdom of God rise. Let's see what the church can do in this time like none other. Let's see how the church of Jesus Christ, multinational, multi-ethnic, rise up for such a time as this. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship and praise. Lord God, as as Rob leads us in one more song, I just pray that you would give us that, that vision that's greater beyond the chaos and the trouble and the fear that we have, God, that you've got this. Lord, set our minds and our hearts on things above and not to be seduced by by the lies that are in the world, but to hold to the truth, the way, and the life of Jesus. Amen. Amen.